Good morning. Let's jump right into today's scripture passage from 1 Corinthians 6, where the Apostle Paul continues to deliver some tough love to the troubled Christians in the ancient city of Corinth over the way they were giving the body of Christ a black eye. Let's hear God's word. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will be judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned by the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Thanks be to him for his word. When Nancy Rascala, Ted Jordan, and I went to Lebanon last May, we met an older, name, an older man named Abbas. Abbas grew up in Lebanon in a Muslim family, but as an adult, he started to question some of the things that he saw going on. Particularly, he said the way the local imam, the local religious leader, was always after their money. There was always a new tax, a new fee, some way to squeeze money out of already very poor people. In a roundabout way, that unsettledness led Abbas to explore the teachings of Jesus. And well, it wasn't long before Abbas became a follower of Jesus. But he was very nervous about telling his family. There could be serious repercussions depending on how religious your family was. And in some cases, even honor killings. The remarkable thing was that when he finally got up the courage to tell his family, they all said, we knew something had happened to you. And they were happy about his new faith because they saw the change that took place in Abbas's life. Turns out that before Christ, Abbas was the biggest jerk in the family. I mean, he was difficult. He was mean. Nobody liked him. His bad attitude and his bad lifestyle, it had been an embarrassment to the family for decades. But when he became a follower of Christ, all of that changed. His heart softened. He began to care about people, began to serve others. And that's why we were meeting with him. He had voluntarily taken on the task of distributing the Operation Mobilization food packets to the many Syrian war refugees who were squatting in basements and empty lots in his neighborhood. And then talking with them about Jesus. And, you know, there's just a real openness to the gospel among those war refugees. And the food packets just helped to begin that conversation. And though Abbas was very poor himself, he had a heart to help others. In fact, his apartment was so small, we couldn't fit into it. So he served us tea and lemonade on a back patio. 
And while we were there with him, several of his relatives just stopped by to visit. One was a young man armed with an automatic weapon who was a member of Hezbollah, the Islamic Shia uh, military group that basically rules southern Lebanon and is fighting in support of King Assad in, in Syria. What an odd experience to be having tea and cookies with a Muslim-born believer and his armed militant Islamic family members, and they're happy that Abbas has become a Christian because Jesus changed the way he lived. This is what's got the Apostle Paul so upset with the Corinthians. They know the good news about Jesus. They turn to Christ. They receive the same Holy Spirit as all believers in Jesus, and yet there was no change in their behavior. None. Zip. Nada. They were still living exactly as they had before they gave their hearts to Christ. It was like Christ made no difference at all in the way that they lived. And that was an embarrassment to the gospel. Basically, Paul is saying, how can you claim to be a follower of Jesus and still act this way? Well, he could ask us the same question. How has your life been changed by your commitment to Jesus Christ? Has Jesus made a difference in the way that you treat people? Are you kinder? Are you more grace-filled? Are, are you the same critical, negative person you always were? Are you a gossip who spreads division and rumors? Are you controlling and selfish? Do you lie to people because you don't follow through with your promises? Are you greedy, obsessed with money? How do you treat people of the opposite sex? How do you relate to people who are a different color or who come from a different culture? There are a lot of uncomfortable questions we could ask to get at the point of what Paul is trying to say. How has Jesus actually changed your life? Here's the thing. Jesus promised transformation through his grace. He said, come to me. Your scarlet sins will be white as snow. Come to me. You'll have living water refreshing your soul. Come to me and I'll give rest to your anxious heart. Come to me and I'll satisfy your deepest longings, your deepest hungers, like the best bread you've ever eaten. Come to me and I'll show you how to love and how to forgive. The whole message of Jesus was about personal transformation in his kingdom. People can be different from what they were before knowing him. Different from the environment they grew up in. No one has to be a prisoner of their past. One of the frustrating things in the American church is that we don't see much change in ourselves or in other Christians. Maybe it's our affluence, our sense of security. People can say they're Christian and just kind of go on with life the same. Rather than radically reorienting their lives around Jesus and his call to discipleship, Jesus is just seen as a helpful addition to an already busy life. And the idea of change is really resisted. Even though people say they want to live for Christ, the change that Jesus brings, well, it's more painful than they thought. It requires more effort, more self-discipline than they thought. We think change should just, you know, happen automatically. Some magic dust floats down from heaven and we're good to go, right? Well, grace doesn't work that way. Change requires repentance and that's where people balk. Repentance, a, a deep recognition of who we are before God. A sorrow for our sin, that's deep stuff. And while what we really want is God to change our circumstances, we want God to change those other people around us. It's really, they're, they're really the problem and they're the ones who need to change, right? Because it's too much harder to say, you know, I've got to deal with my own thoughts, my own urges, 
my own actions and emotions. In his prayer in John 17, Jesus prays that his followers would be in the world but not of the world. In the world, where they're still in this world but they can experience God's power and God's sense of belonging. In the world but not of the world. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is contrasting how the world operates and how followers of Jesus are supposed to operate. And as we've seen before, Paul, often Paul goes from addressing a specific problem faced by the Corinthians to a more general principle applicable throughout the centuries. Chapter 6 begins with a problem. Lawsuits. Trivial. Petty. Nuisance lawsuits. Very prevalent in ancient Greece. Well, it was kind of standard operating procedure to cheat people in the marketplace. Everybody did it. Put your thumb on the scale. Bait and switch. Give inferior quality and you better count your change. Cheating was kind of considered to be the norm, and so they set up a court right in the center of the marketplace where these disputes could be aired in public. It would be like going on the people's court or Judge Judy. It was entertainment to see how these suits would get settled and who would be exposed as, the, as being the cheater. And Christians who grew up in that atmosphere we're still acting the same way. One brother wronged another brother by cheating him in some way, and the guy who got cheated takes the cheater to court to get his money back. Paul is challenging both of them to find a better way to solve their problems than by suing each other in the secular courts. The body of Christ is supposed to be a community, a community based on love of Jesus Christ, supposed to be a place where you treat others with respect and honor, and yet petty problems like this were consuming the church. Their energy was focused on these, these petty problems rather than on spreading the gospel. And Paul is saying, in this situation, it's better to love than to litigate. Better to be defrauded than to drag Christ's name through the mud in the secular court. And he really, he shames them. He says, is there really no one smart enough in your entire church who couldn't help you figure this stuff out? Obviously, it's ego more than anything. Somebody's ego got bruised, and so they want revenge. They'd never admit that to anyone, maybe not even to themselves. They feel righteous in their actions. But isn't that true today? Disputes in the church are just so petty over the littlest things. Somebody's feelings got hurt. Somebody's ego got bruised. Somebody's territory feels threatened. We may not take people to court, but we sure spend a lot of emotional energy on petty and frivolous disputes. Paul's point, Christians, you've got to find a better way to solve your personal problems than airing your dirty laundry in the public courts. But then Paul moves on to the greater principle in verses 9 and 11. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, he said. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, or thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is graphically describing the world that they lived in. A world filled with all kinds of screwed up people and damaged lifestyles. A world summed up maybe with one word, brokenness. Brokenness. In verse 9, he lists five sexual behaviors that lead people astray. Heterosexual promiscuity, adultery, temple prostitution, and then two different words, 
for consensual homosexual acts, which basically covers everything outside of the biblical understanding of one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. Then in verse 10, he lists five behaviors that are non-sexual but also damage relationships, every kind of crook and hustler he can think of. In both lists, he's describing a very ugly world where people could basically were out to do whatever they wanted to do, regardless of God's will. And then there is this shining ray of hope, verse 11. And this is what some of you were. Listen carefully as I say that again, because it contains one of the most exciting, hopeful, powerful sentences in the entire Bible. And this is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In making that list of ten sinful behaviors, Paul wasn't talking about outsiders, but insiders. The believers in Corinth, this was their resume. In the church, there were former adulterers, people who practiced all kinds of sexual promiscuity, all kinds of crooks and swindlers. It was quite a church. Lots of mixed up people. But then Christ entered in, and they were changed and transformed into something new. The presence of Christ brought order to their chaos, freedom from their addictions, hope to their despair, sexual sanity to their confusion, healing to their emotions and their memories. The presence of Christ was enough to deal with all this internal mess. Praise God, people can change. With Christ, you don't have to be stuck. You don't have to keep going down the same road. And this has been the joyful message of Jesus throughout all generations. The presence of Christ is enough to deal with your internal mess, no matter what it is. The really hopeful meaning of today's passage is that if Jesus could change this bunch in Corinth, he could change anybody, anywhere, anytime. And that includes you and me. So why do we see so little true transformation in believers? The answer is we tend to just live on the surface of things. Sort of like an iceberg. You know, one-third of an iceberg is is visible above the water, but two-thirds is beneath. And for a lot of believers, their faith in Christ is just involved with the top third of life. The visible, the easy, the apparent. They don't really reveal the two-thirds beneath the surface, because that's the secret side, the deeper stuff. We've got to realize there is more to being a follower of Christ than looking good on the outside, of pretending that things are better than they really are. I believe we can become the transformed people God calls us to be, but we've got to address these core problems in the inner selves and then learn to live from the inside out. The Bible says we can be transformed, Romans 12, 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are being transformed into Christ's likeness with ever-increasing glory. The Greek word is metamorphosis. It conjures up that image of a caterpillar and a cocoon, and it's, it's emerging to become a butterfly. Metamorphosis is that beautiful process of transformation, but the process, it has to involve struggle. Entomologists know that if you try to help a, a baby butterfly out of the cocoon, it will never be able to fly will die. It needs the struggle. It needs the struggle of getting out of that cocoon in order to build strength into its wings. It needs the struggle to grow to its fullest potential. And in the same way, true transformation for us isn't automatic. It doesn't just fall from the sky. It is Christ working in us, and it is a struggle. 
It is the hardest kind of work because it requires repentance and our willingness to let Christ into our deep spaces, our urges, our motives, our memories, our actions. How does, Paul, how does transformation happen? Paul says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Basically, he's describing the same thing. It's not a three-step thing he's doing here. But this is how it works. When you come to Christ, when you come to faith in Christ, you become a child of God. You are a new creation. That's automatic. That means you have a new position before God the Father because of Jesus' sacrificial death. In God's sight, he looks at you as washed, holy, justified immediately because you are wrapped, you are enveloped in the righteousness of Christ. It's not a life changed, a life exchanged. You haven't changed at all, uh, not yet, but this is how it starts. It's not self-reform. Gospel change begins with this great exchange. Christ takes my sin and guilt and gives me his holiness and forgiveness. It's this, this exchanged life that's the beginning and then gives us the ability to become a new person. Right now in Christ, you are righteous before the throne of God by grace. You don't deserve it, you can't earn it, but it happened. Jesus saved you by his grace. And practically now, you may feel the same. Same struggles, same shortcomings, same sins, same weaknesses. When some folks come to Christ, they do get healed instantly of an addiction or some besetting sin in their lives. But most don't. The change requires our active, daily cooperation with the Holy Spirit. The change involves the pain of facing ourselves, and that's why we avoid it. Even though it might really set us free, it's hard to face. It's, it's just more comfortable to stick with what we know. At least we were managing it. So we tend to rearrange rather than change. We clean the outside, but not within. And remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23? He said, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. We can be so concerned with looking good on the outside and that there's no real change on the inside. And for that, we've got to get washed get washed. That describes this daily release of God's Spirit into you to do what needs to be done in your life. Washing is a powerful image throughout the Bible, always connected with the work of the Holy Spirit, consistently expresses what can happen when a life is turned over to the grace of God. All the filth, all the grime, all the crud washed away, cleansed, and beautifully have the sense of being clean, made new before God. We are already perfectly washed in his sight, but in our daily experience, we also need to be washed again and again through daily surrender to the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught us this on the night of his last supper when he knelt down to wash his disciples' feet. He took the servant's roll, put a servant's towel over his arm and a pan of water, went to each disciple to wash their feet. And of course, Peter objected so much like us. We say we want Christ, but are we willing to be washed? His pride kind of entered in and you know, sometimes it's pride that keeps us from Christ's cleansing. Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Unless I wash you, you have no part of me. And Peter's immediate response was, Then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands, my head as well. And Jesus answered him back and said, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean. You are already clean before God. And you need God's cleansing every day. Do you see how those two things work together? You are washed, sanctified, justified, and you need to walk in the Spirit every day. You know, we're not going to be perfect, but we can be better. 
we can become more like Jesus Christ through the indwelling, washing, cleansing, justifying work of the Holy Spirit. Praise God, through Christ, people can change. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that even though this is, again, another tough passage, it has this just hopeful, so hopeful proclamation that that's what you were, but in Christ you're washed and sanctified and justified. Lord, I thank you that that's our story too. We could put ourselves right into the story. We might look better on the outside. We may have cleaned up that third that's above the water on our iceberg. We look pretty good to each other. Lord, you know our true selves, way down deep. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring that transforming work of your Holy Spirit into our lives each and every day this week as we yield ourselves to you. Thank you for this table that we're going to celebrate in just a second, that it reminds us of your servanthood even going to the cross on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, that in you we are clean and we need to be washed every day. Amen.